welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centered design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. Before we jump in, however, as this podcast was recorded in the Sydney CBD, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. In this episode, we caught up with Andy Pillane, who's Regional APAC Design Director for Fjord, and also Professor Simon McIntyre to discuss the future of education and ask the mammoth question of, is education broken? So before I continue, I wanted to thank Holly Colbert at Sustain Digital in Sydney, who has sponsored this episode with $500 being donated to Caracare. Remember, all advertising proceeds from this podcast go directly to one of the most incredible charities in Australia, which is Caracare. So Sustain are a recruitment company with a difference. They're ethical and are passionate really about what they do, bringing global recruitment experience. So they're not your typical recruiters and they give back to the community. So most importantly, they find the best talent. So they're like a matchmaker between employers and employees. So get in touch with their founder, Holly Colbert at holly at sustainedigital.com to find out more. There's more details in the show notes. So going back to the topic, with a topic as big as this, we've split this into two parts. So in this episode, we discuss, generally speaking, the current problems that exist from the educational system globally, touching on the role of STEM and STEAM. It was really good to have Andy and Simon in to discuss this, as we learned from different perspectives of Simon and Andy. So Simon's perspective of actually educating students on a day-to-day basis, and Andy, who was also educated for over a decade globally before his role at Fjord. So we hear his perspective of what it looks like in the consulting world to receive that talent and the graduates from the system. So I think you'll enjoy this one, so let's jump straight in. Today in the show, we have Andy Blaine and Simon McIntyre. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Thanks very much. Let's kick off. Andy, tell us a little bit about how you got into design. How I got into design. So I, I originally wanted to be a film director. So that was my path through was that I studied um, film, photography, video and digital media and in the very early 90s, the beginning of interactive media. And that was sort of a, a segue. I, I discovered a, a Mac and Macromind director and Photoshop 2. Macromedia. And, and uh, then I went, carried on from there. Okay. So um, where are you working at at the moment? So I'm the uh, APAC regional design director at Fjord. Okay, excellent. And Simon, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about it yourself and how you got into design. Uh, I guess in high school, I didn't study art or anything like that. But once I actually started, I really got into it. I liked the creativity. I liked the systems thinking. And a lot of my work was in graphic design and interactive media back in the days of CD-ROMs, if anyone remembers those. And slowly after doing a lot of teaching in design, I started to really get interested in the hybrid of design and education mm-hmm. and how that can change the way we do things. Yeah, excellent. So Simon, you're obviously Australian and um, Andy, I've noticed you're obviously English. So it'll be interesting to see both your perspectives on um, today's topic, which is, uh, is education broken? Which is a nice segue into discussing how this topic originated. Andy, tell us a little bit about that. So Jerry and I, we had a discussion about this for about a potential topic. So I know Simon, just full disclosure, um, I've known Simon for a very long time, actually, since about 99. And we've both been lecturers at uh, the School of Art and Design, UNSW, which was previously called COFA, College of Fine Arts. And then I've also been in education, teaching design and service design in particular in Germany and Switzerland. And so one of the things that I realized as I was going through that journey of teaching is really you get involved in the educational system and you see it from the inside, you see that there's lots of things that are very, very broken. But particularly as students are coming through 
into service design in particular where you really need that kind of systems thinking that Simon was talking about, that way of kind of pattern thinking and networking. And it's a multidisciplinary activity that the sort of conveyor belt style of education is really kind of broken for a multidisciplinary world. Mm. Simon? Well, I think I would agree with that. I should also disclose I'm the new Associate Dean Education at UNSW Art and Design. So this is one of the problems I'm trying to tackle right now. But I think fundamentally from my experience, what exacerbates this issue is the fact that everyone seems to be working in isolation. No one's stepping back and looking at the bigger picture and understanding how they fit within it as educators and how to chart that journey or help students understand how to make connections between concepts. It's just learn what's right in front of you, come out and move on to the next thing. And you see it in higher education in particular that just by the, the physical layout of a campus, right? So if you think of most of the kind of difficult and what in design we'd call wicked problems in the world, they're the intersection of culture and technology and politics and money and law and all those things. Yet all those faculties are in different buildings. So the chances for people to actually kind of get together, you get a couple of people doing double degrees you get um, occasional moments where there's a, some, a research project that's labelled multidisciplinary in order to usually just to get the funding. But in reality, it's very siloed. But it traces right the way back to school education as well. That's very siloed as well. It's rare to have much collaboration between different disciplines at school. So looking at universities, obviously what Andy was just saying there about being in silos, how do those problems manifest itself into the workplace? What's your experience with that? I think one of the biggest issues is that education is existing in a competitive ecosystem. So you mentioned before, Andy, something about looking at competing for funding and faculties and schools, they're all scrabbling over trying to get that dollar to keep themselves going, which I completely understand given the way that funding is set up. But the problem that comes out of that is that people tend to close off And it's really not about looking at how we can leverage all the different educational opportunities available as a holistic experience. So when students go through a system like that and then go out into the workplace, I don't think that their experience in education matches how the world works now. It's very much about being more interconnected. It's very much about collaboration, but we're not really teaching our students how to do that. We just expect them to be able to know. Yeah. I completely agree, except I think that um, the real thing is that the student's experience of education doesn't match the things that need to be done in the workplace. And unfortunately, it does actually match mostly what's going on in companies, which the exact same thing happens in large organisations. They're siloed, they're kind of conveyor belt careers from you know uh, graduate going up the hierarchy, which is also part of the problem. So a lot of things we're trying to do in service design is trying to break down those silos and we think, oh, that's about business, but I think it starts much, much, much earlier. The sort of longer version of this is education is a product of the Industrial Revolution, right? So public education, Ken Robinson's talked about this a lot, where you've moved from artisans creating something, you know, creating one object and talking to each other, talking to customers, and, and then creating another one, and also the sort of agrarian society, where, you know, people learn on the job, right? In those situations, people learned on the job. If you were a sort of wealthy elite, you'd have a tutor. But other than that, you're learning. Then in the rise of factories, a lot of the first public schools were funded by factory owners. Mm. And in that situation, the parents are sort of moved into a city, the parents are in the factory all day, 
so the kids need something to do, so they go to school. And, of course, at school you're taught to sit down, be still, learn rote tasks, mm. learn repetitive tasks, do what you're told, obey the hierarchy, which is a great priming for a job in a factory. And really, you know, this thing that Jerem Calkin said it about Marshall McLuhan of, you know, we shape our tools and thereafter they shape us. The dominant kind of paradigm of the day decides how we kind of think about things. So back then, education is a conveyor bar, right? It's an assembly line. You, you put some raw material at the beginning, the kids, they go in, they get stamped into shape and you pop out as a tax accountant or a, or a designer or a lawyer and so forth. And that kind of worked quite well in, a, in an age where you pretty much had a job for life. And in fact, most of what you're doing then is you come in at the bottom and you're learning really your profession on the job as much as you did. You're just learning some of the kind of basics in, in university. I think that's very, very different now. Most of us here have careers that didn't exist even sort of 10 or 15 years ago. So if interaction designer or an app designer just didn't exist. Right? So I've no idea what the future is going to be for students today and I actually would hate to be a kind of teenager today so that makes it very very difficult for education to be set up in that kind of predictive way of you learn this and then you'll get a job it's just not as simple you actually have to learn capability of thinking yeah so like looking at from a service design perspective you obviously zoom out and we kind of identify that it's not really how the universities are structured themselves it's how the system is structured so what countries um, have you seen that where the, the structure is correct in your view? Well, Finland, we were just talking before the podcast, is a famous example of getting education right. And I think when you sort of read about or look at people talking about who are working in the Finnish education system, and one thing, they generally don't have homework. It's also illegal to have any tutoring outside of school in Finland. And part of that's about a kind of whole societal belief in the value of education and in the value of inquiry and being curious. I mean, the big killer for education is standardised testing and the sort of audit culture that institutions have gone through. So in the UK and also in Australia, and all of the institutions get audited, all the scores get ranked, and it's a competition. And just recently in the UK, there's been a a headmaster who's just resigned because they were basically telling the students who didn't get A grades, uh, you have to leave our school because you're kind of pulling the ranking down. Which is, you know, the Finns would just be kind of... Appalled. Appalled at that. Yeah. I think just continuing on that thought, something that I've seen happening over the last few years is education is too slow to actually adapt holistically to some of the challenges that are facing us and some of the Mm, needs that society has. So what tends to happen is the values tend to be eroded to keep the machine going. So what I mean by that is you have to have a certain amount of students that you're shoveling into the system Mm. to be able to pay for the complex, unwieldy system. And then to actually maintain that, there's more and more education providers popping up mm. for a quick fix, so to speak. And so you have to lower the bar and shovel more students in mm. rather than taking the time to stop and really look at the context that the education system is in holistically and redesign it and overhaul it. It's a massive undertaking. Mm. It's something we're trying to do now at Art and Design. It's nearly killing me. <laughs> But I think it's absolutely necessary. We can't keep patching and changing in small increments anymore because outside of the system, the way we live, the people who are designing the apps, who are disrupting normal businesses, Mm -hmm. they have changed what's required and we have to be able to actually match that. So what could happen if we don't change how we educate? I think there'll be a bigger and bigger disconnect and a devaluing of what education means. 
there yeah. are people out there who are actually making it, if I can put that in air quotes, who haven't been through higher education, for example, um, but they understand how the world works, how the new share economies work. They've used disruptive innovation in a way to change things from the grassroots level. And that's where a lot of services are drifting towards because it's more convenient. It's the path of least resistance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things in there. One is that, you know, education has been, it's expected to be run like a business at the same time as it's a public institution and service. And that's a real problem. Right? So you can't. You're looking at the bottom line. And- yeah. And you can't keep driving efficiencies in something like education. Some things that, you know, cost money because we think as a society that they're worth spending money on. So in Germany, for example, education is completely free. My wife's constantly appalled at the idea that people have to pay to go to university. My wife's German. It's relatively Um, the same in Ireland as well. Yeah, and because that's seen as an investment in the future. Whereas if you look at the States, where people are leaving higher education with enormous amounts of crippling debt, it's a massive problem. I mean, it's a really huge problem and you see it also causes a societal problem. So that's one side of things. And what happens when you run education like that is it's the same as kind of top 20 radio stations, right? If you're going for advertising dollars, then you play popular music because that's what brings the audiences. But then what happens is every radio station starts playing all the same music. And that's what's happened with the university. So all those kind of niche and sort of more fringe and sometimes often interesting and important subjects get cut. And it's just a real focus on, say, STEM, the science, technology, engineering and maths at the expense of everything else. And so you lose that kind of diversity. And like with anything, as soon as you lose diversity, you start getting some really homogenised thinking and it it just becomes a kind of vicious cycle. Yeah. I think the other aspect of that is I've seen a trend of decisions being made in terms of what's being offered based on what students want. It's Mm -hmm. become a real driving imperative to try and actually lure people in with what they think students want, but sometimes it's also what they need. And as educators, I think we have a responsibility to understand the world we're putting these students into and to make sure that we can give them the tools they need to be able to thrive in that environment. And we're not doing that as well as we could. I mean, I agree. And I think the the upshot of that is this credentialing. So you you get students who come and they just want to get the degree because they know that that's what they... they, The piece of paper. And really, you know, a degree is, is like currency. So it's only if someone comes in your door with a CV and it says, I've got a degree from Harvard, you believe it's better because you, everyone kind of believes it's better. It's, it's an illusion like currency is, right? So as long as everyone believes in it, it's fine. But it's very easy for that to start to collapse. And as you see, when currencies collapse, it's because people lose faith in that as an investment. Right? And, and I think what the danger for education is, and higher education in particular, and you're seeing it as you get these kind of other institutions and private institutions popping up, like you know Academy XI or General um, Assembly and all of those, particularly in design, where... To be honest, I take a cursory look at someone's education and their CV when I get an application, but most of the time I'm looking at their portfolio and then most of the time I'm, I'm actually saying, yeah, don't show me the shiny stuff. Tell me how you, you're thinking behind that and how you got there. And so actually the sort of credentialing bit starts to become less and less relevant and that's a huge problem for yeah. higher education. I just want to take the conversation back just a little bit around to the bottom line and how universities are run like businesses. Who's making that decision to focus on the bottom line? Is it the government or is it the head of the universities themselves? Oh, it's an ecosystem, right? Yeah, I was going to say it's a chain reaction because as funding is cut further and further, yeah. people go into survival mode and you have to actually be able to maintain the bottom line to stay open to keep doing what you're doing. 
So I think, as Andy said before, the government's investment in education and I guess understanding that by doing that, you're improving society on a whole other level that's not just about the quality of the graduates is something that's really missing. And as part of that kind of short-term cycle thing, and that's the thing of running it, trying to run a country like a business again, which is one of the big problems in in business and organisations and organisational change is the short-term sort of quarterly cycles of shareholder reporting. Right? So really, it's not really about the people who are working there or even the end customers. It's about satisfying a kind of elite group of wealthy investors who are upset if they don't get their made-up number yeah. each quarter. But the same thing then goes in government, right? So you, you have politics is, you know, really plagued by short-term thinking because it's just about the next election and just about the sort of next thing and not really thinking. All of those kind of fundamental services, and education is one of them, are kind of ongoing public institutions. And so in many respects, public funding for education is like fossil fuels, right? It's just getting less and less and less. And it's probably never going to come back. And then so you need some kind of radical thinking. And it's plagued by the same problem where you've got a, a problem that's really long-term. It's very hard for anyone to kind of conceive of it beyond their own little kind of career bubble. So what happens, like, you know, is this trying to move governments forward into that way of thinking, changing the mindset of governments to, to think more like Finland? What can we do as practitioners, me being practitioner and you guys being educators, what can we do to change the system? I think one of the things you have to do is break it if you can and show that it works. I mean, at the moment at UNSW, for example, we have a new vice chancellor who has a very different opinion about what university should be. So it should be measured on how it gives back to society on the whole. It should be about more cross-disciplinary interaction. It should be about less siloing. Mm. Very easy things to say. How, how are you going to measure that, though? Like that's, that's, that's well, that's the, the thing. Um, there's a lot of investment happening in to trying to make that happen. In terms of the measurement, it's a long game. And I don't think we've worked out all the parameters yet. And I think some of the skills that Andy was referring to earlier about what students need to be able to do when they leave these institutions, we have no way of measuring yet either. And it's not as easy as that standard test to show I can do that calculation or explain someone else's idea. It's about a whole series of complex concepts that allow students to adapt to any different situation. So the measurement becomes a lot more difficult. Yeah. yeah. I remember when I was choosing, I studied industrial design back in NCAD in Ireland. And luckily I had parents who were open-minded to allow me to take on those kind of career choices at 16 and 17. They were like, we hope he's going to get a job, but we're not entirely too sure. And when I left university, there was really, I went into this kind of void and I didn't really know what to do with my degree. And for a couple of years afterwards, I was kind of like discounting my degree. I was like, I don't know why I did that. Like I, I wasn't able to get a job, but it's only in the last decade or so I'm actually you know, really thankful that I studied industrial design because that system thinking was just it was native to how we worked and we collaboratively worked together with other departments and stuff. But just following on from that, I'm seeing a lot of people in the industry who are trying to get into the industry, who are trying to move careers from, say, law into design. And I think it's really evident from the fact that they're making these choices too early, like they want to become a lawyer and then they go into the, that system and then they realise that that system is broken and they want to change it. And how do they change it? It's kind of like they want to learn these skills. So they're going to Academy XI and they're going to General Assembly, trying to upskill, but they can't get into the industry. So it's the whole system is, seems to be um, in conflict uh, with each other. What's interesting though, I think we can use those standardised measures 
to our advantage in trying to change the system. So, for example, quilt scores, quality indicators of learning and teaching, has suddenly become very important because it's a national ranking scale of how universities measure in terms of student satisfaction with programs and employers' satisfaction with graduates. And all of a sudden, universities are sitting up and really taking notice that, wow, we actually rank up here on the research scale, but all of a sudden, it's public knowledge we're not doing so well on the education scale. So one thing we're trying to do is co-design curriculum with industry, because if we can engage industry with our programs and with our students, not right at the end, not in professional placements that happen at the end of the degree when it's too late for students to understand where they are and what their shortcomings have been through the educational experience, we can form a sort of permeable membrane between the education bubble and the the industry or societal bubble. Mm. And I think that's been one of the big problems is we've existed in our own self-important, self-defined kind of environment. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I I really liked about Germany is they still have that whole apprenticeship model. And it's actually kind of, the education system is quite complex. That's part of the degree, is it? It's part of it. So even at the age of 16, there's this sort of different pathways you can go down. In fact, you start deciding that even earlier, even younger, which has its own problems. But still in, certainly in what would be called vocational careers, which I kind of really always sort of hate the term of because it's slightly sort of looked down upon, especially in sort of from universities often. They're the people who do kind of practical stuff, you know, like sort of uh, painters and electricians, as if those people aren't important, right? But Germany has a real, really strong culture. Of you, you, if you learn any of those trades, for example, you, you go to uni or you go to some sort of higher education or further education institution whilst you're working at the same time. And so you have that kind of combination of industry and education and, and then na- it's naturally kind of feeding backwards and forwards yeah. through, through the students. And it's been the biggest kind of killer, I think, for quality education in all the countries that dispensed with that. You know, and, and it's sort of come back in a fairly ugly way with internships. And we see it in the States, a lot of people who are highly qualified in terms of their graduate or postgraduate careers, spending years being unpaid interns, you know. I mean, so they, and that's a kind of another problem in its own right. So the earlier I think you get industry involved in education, the better. And another really interesting insight, we've been having discussions with different industry partners about what our graduates are lacking. Because one of the big problems is that I think a lot of academics have been in academia for a very long time and the world has actually changed around them. So, I mean, the paradigm has shifted exactly. in the, even in the last two years as opposed to the last decade. Well, it used to be that if you were an academic, you were, you know, academia, you were a sort of secular priesthood, right? You're, as the professor of some or the chair of something, you're the source of knowledge and information. And now that's the internet changed all that, of course. So you're no longer the source of information and it really shifts as the sort of classic phrase in education from the sage on the stage to the guide by the side, yeah. right? Of, of now it's a, you need, need to look at, well, how do I help and sit next to someone as we sort of discover yeah. and make sense of this information out there and turn it into knowledge and, and learning? But the institutions aren't really kind of set up for that. You know, academic careers are really sort of built upon building your own little tower whilst demolishing everyone else's, right? particularly in research. Yeah. So yeah, I've uh, that paper that Jerry wrote. It's wrong because of all these reasons that I've just proved in my paper. Right? So it, it's inherently actually not that collaborative. Although research teams obviously collaborate together, but it's not very multidisciplinary either. So I the conflict think. is related to the funding and the structure. Yeah, and they yeah. all kind of interrelate to each other. 
yeah, it goes back to the original thing. It's just a system problem as opposed to like... Well, another example of that is there are hundreds of measures of research performance. Yeah. And how many measures do we have of teaching performance at the moment? At, well, there's one. So who, who defines those metrics? That's just it. We're, we're actually trying to do that now in the institution and it's incredibly difficult because it's something that is not done the same across the board. If I've got X number of papers that I have to write or X number of dollars I have to bring in in grants, that's very easy to measure. But how can we measure a practice which is done in so many different ways and the benefits may manifest themselves much later than when a student is sitting in your class. Mm. I mean, the measurement thing is a fundamental problem in education and it's, you know, all the way down to that sort of auditing culture of, uh, that I was talking about before with, in schools where you, know, you get school ranking and it's kind of based on how many students got this, these many A grades and so forth. It doesn't really tell you anything about the experience. Right. I mean, it's, you know, to bring it back to design, it's our classic problem. Of we know this makes a difference, but it's very hard to kind of measure that in a quantitative way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, some of the measures of like student satisfaction and industry satisfaction give you some more qualitative uh, understanding of it. But in a, in a scenario where everyone's just being sort of measured quantitatively, you end up focusing on anything you measure becomes a, a thing that you focus on and a you driver. Chase those yeah, numbers. and you chase those. So yeah. you end up. Measuring things that are easily measured quantitatively, so, you know, the sort of standardised questionnaires, multiple choice, uh, ranking systems and so forth. And then other stuff that doesn't affect those measures because people chase the money gets reduced. And that's a massive problem for, for the arts and humanities. Mm. But it's also a massive problem for us culturally in that if you see what's going on in Silicon Valley with the kind of tech bubble and the tech bros and, the, you know, the likes of, you know, where engineering is king, you really need people at Facebook and Google who have studied ethics and about society and what's and our biases, role in society and all yeah. and biases and all yeah. of those things. And those conversations, that knowledge comes from the humanities. It doesn't come out of uh, science and engineering. Or engineering, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Andy, what metrics should we be measuring? So we talk a lot at Fjord about impact and what, what's the impact. And that if you start impact there... society? Well, yeah, that's the thing, right? So if you start there, it's a really useful question because it, it will impact to society, impact on people, impact on people's lives, impact on the individual. And it's a kind of useful starting point to then think about, well, how do we go, you know, what are the components of that and how do we measure it? Because then it's not just about a set of numbers because impact is quite a complex thing uh, and it can be short-term and also long-term. Mm. So classic sort of triple bottom line stuff of, you know, there's obviously economic impact, but there's social or environmental impact that you could look at. I think some of those sort of softer metrics are things that you, you need to measure. And was interesting in that kind of finished thing, which was they were saying when they were um, asking about, you know, do you give kids homework? And they're going, no, because they're doing other things. And they said, well, what kind of other things? Well, you know, being with their family and sort of playing exploring the world, playing with each other, being together, playing music and all of those things. All of those things that if we took them out of society, everyone would be distraught, right? Yeah. We all listen to music and, you know, we all listen to podcasts, we all listen, to, we read the newspaper, we read books, we consume enormous amounts of media and all sorts of other stuff. But those also have to be made by someone, right? Yeah. Simon, you're going to say? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head in some ways that longitudinal measurement, I think, is critical. At the moment, we're just looking at what happens in my class or what grade they get when they graduate. But it's a longer-term investment of faith in some ways to be able to look at longitudinal impact across these different sectors. And I guess part of that is shifting from just teaching a subject area to sort of teaching how to integrate that with the rest of your life. 
as well. All those experiences of climbing a tree or listening to music mm. are important in being a holistic human being in society. Yeah. But for some reason, I think the education system assumes that mm. people automatically know how to do that. Yeah. Whereas we could look at a more holistic approach. And I think Finland giving more time for children to be children and to experience those different things and to put an equal importance on those experiences mm. is something we should be looking at a little bit more closely. So Simon, we were discussing before we started recording um, what we can do in the short term to change the process. What are your thoughts? I guess I could talk quickly about some of the approaches we're trying to take at UNSW Art and Design because we've really started to see a disjoint between what the students are when they come out of our programs as they are and the world they're going into. So we've been doing a lot of work in stepping back and looking at the curriculum as a whole rather than lots of separate individual kind of pieces. So part of the challenge we're facing now is real culture change within the institution. We're looking at changing the educational experience of students to being more pathway driven, helping them actually understand who they are as practitioners very early. And that's a lifelong process, but giving them the tools to be able to reflect on that and clearer pathways about if you're interested in this general direction, these are the sorts of different combinations of experiences you can have. And another thing is looking at programmatic assessment. So instead of being assessed 500 times in one semester, over and over and over again, all you've got time to do is get that assessment done. So we're looking at stripping back the number of assessments significantly and having a core studio that runs through the entire program where students need to synthesize their understanding of all the different experiences they've had at key points. And some of those experiences, we're working with other faculties to make them very much uh, collaborative. And we're also working on better integration of industry experience throughout, not just placements, but actually having students working on industry projects with students from business, engineering, whatever. It's a big challenge, Mm. but there's a lot of faith in the fact that we can do it and it needs to happen because the university's, I think, suddenly noticing the students aren't maybe at the top of their game when it comes to getting out in the real world. Yeah. All right. That's really interesting. So just going to move on to another topic. Um, I know a couple of people in the Slack channel for This Is HCD were mentioning about the role of STEM or STEAM. Uh, Some people are certain to refer, I know there's an extension of the word arts Mm. in there as well. And I know, Andy, we've discussed this a little bit, uh, being able to play in the future of education. So is this the silver bullet, STEAM, um, as being the silver bullet to solve all the problems? I know it's a loaded question. I don't think it's uh, the silver bullet, but I think it helps. Um, actually, part of the problem, both in education and in sort of business in general, is the looking for the silver bullet, right? which is... What can get us to the next stage? What can get us to this thing quickly, because this is in the too hard basket. And some, you know, something that's taken many decades to become complex and tangled and broken takes a long time to unpick. So that, that's, I think, one part of that. I mean, I really like what Simon was talking about just before about doing a mapping exercise of the curriculums and programs across the entire faculty because that's a design process, right? And I think for me, my actually my entry into service design was was actually whilst I was at COFA and we were having a faculty reshuffle back then. And I remember thinking this is a design process, right? While we were sitting around a table reading out sheets of A4. 
And then I started thinking about the design of organizations and that was my sort of lead into service design. I think that that's one important thing, which is to understand that this is a design process. Policy writing is a design process. Right? It's an act of design to write policy, both in government and in institutions. I think in terms of the STEM and STEAM question, there's been this very vocal voice in the public discourse about science, technology, engineering and maths and how important they are and we need to get more of that in schools and this is the future and so forth. Now, there's no doubt that technology is a big factor in, in contemporary life and that you need people who know what they're doing in it. And I'm not saying that STEM isn't important. You know, I don't want my plane to fall out the sky and I want my iPhone to work, right? But at the same time, I, would, I don't want to have kind of rubbish experiences with those either and I don't want to have things that have knock-on effects for society um, like Brexit or like Trump or any of those things too because of a kind of a narrow point of view no, around what I'm doing. And so uh, STEAM is, is, uh, was John Maders, I think, was one of the people who originally pushed it, which was you know, to put the arts back into STEM. And I think that's really important, that interplay between the two. Mm. Because they are, at the moment, two very different mindsets. My, my sort of current theory about design thinking is it's a corrective kind of measure for the lack of arts thinking in education. Yeah. And so you've got a load of people who've kind of gone through education and they've focused on what, you know, what subjects am I going to do that are going to get me a, a proper job out there. They go into business and if you imagine around the sort of age of 17 when you're choosing and you're thinking, well, you know, I'd quite like to be, get into the arts or media or design or be a writer or something. Lots of people around you are saying... Or, mm, oh, I don't know, that's a risky career, you know, absolutely. like you just said. Yeah, absolutely. You know, or maybe you should do a proper job. And, and I spoke to someone the other day, and she was brilliant. She's a service designer. But she studied, I think, visual communications and international relations. And I said, did your parents tell you to do the international relations bit? And she said, yeah, yeah, they did. I really wanted to be a designer. <laughs> so then that kind of flows on. If you think of where we are with um, sort of design thinking and business, you've got a whole load of people kind of in, in business, which is a broad term, who effectively are kind of risk-adverse, right, naturally, because that's, they've chosen that path in many respects. And it's not entirely true. Obviously, people chose things that they wanted to do too. But to choose to be in a design or arts profession, you're basically are choosing risk, right? You're choosing a career that you know might mean lots of unemployment and lots of instability, so you're comfortable with ambiguity, which means you're comfortable usually with a design process, which has lots of ambiguity, you don't know the, the answers to it. And so you've got that kind of clash. And now what you're seeing is business saying, oh, we've sort of got to a dead end and we need someone like that. We need some people who are able to think like that. But they're two really different mindsets. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the cultural clash comes when you see sort of design meet kind of organisations and business. And I would love to see that thinking earlier. I had a student in Switzerland and she was a, when I was, was teaching service design and she's now a service designer yeah. uh, working in Berlin now. But she was a teacher. She was a primary school teacher previously. Mm -hmm. She came in after that career into the master's. And interestingly enough, she sort of got it more than a lot of product designers did or people who had come through a design education. So I've found, I don't know, I've found when I get master's students in general, by the time they've got that far, their sort of mind Molded. has been moulded. Yeah. yeah. And I think often, yeah, bachelor's students are, are more open. But often people who come in from other careers, they're already there because they're kind of curious and they want something different and, and they're less kind of defined. 
And one of the things she did was wanted to bring sort of design thinking into primary school teaching. And she did a project and she had to make a little kind of toolkit and some stuff for a teacher. And when she was doing her sort of validation of it, the teacher was sort of like, oh, I don't know, it's, it's more stuff for me to do. The, you know, incredible time pressures. There's this kid at the back who never says anything, never takes part in class. And I don't think he's going to be able to do you know, a design exercise. And she said, well, let's just see. And when she did it, this quiet kid suddenly blossomed, right, was just uh, completely engaged along with the rest of the class. And it, the teacher was absolutely shocked that that could have that, that effect. That could happen, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, when hearing sort of stories like that, it's one data point, but I think, you know, to have that integrated much earlier would be uh, fantastic. And I think it would make a real difference to the way people think. And when you see what's going on in places like Finland or countries where they have a much broader kind of education or education systems like Montessori and Steiner that do that. Um, I think, you know, you get much more fully rounded individuals coming out. And I think to Simon's point, you get more fully rounded society as a result. But that's a really long term kind of game. Yeah. So look, this topic, we could obviously speak for hours uh, on it. There's lots of different areas. And there's some questions that I had around the roles of parents in enabling this type of thinking and what they can say to their schools. But we're going to have to move on. We're going to move over to Mark's three questions from hell, as we know it is. And it's three questions for Andy and might pitch it to Simon as well. Cool. So the first question is to both of you, what professional skill do you wish you were better at? Shorter sentences. <laughs> That was a good start. <laughs> you're, you're nailing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wish I didn't have such a sort of allergic reaction to spreadsheets. And that's one of those kind of knowledge things. I think the way maths is taught in school is just soul-destroying. And, and when I started doing some programming, it was really great because I said, oh, right, so that algebra that I learned, now I can see the results of that on screen. And that was an eye-opener. So I, I wish sort of maths had been taught to me differently so I actually kind of enjoyed or under, you know, felt more comfortable in that later on with numbers. Simon? I don't know if it's a professional skill per se, but positive subversion. Being able to actually speak the language better of the existing systems mm. so you can get within and then start to change people's minds. I'm getting a little way with that now, yeah. but um, it's definitely a skill. Yeah, mm, that's a good one. That's a great yeah. one. I'm an angry ranter. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like that term that. too. Yeah, I haven't haven't heard that before. Difficult to say. <laughs> um, what's the one thing that you wish you were able to banish? So I guess if you know you're both in kind of different industries, but could be anything. I think I would banish the idea of efficiency and switch it for effectiveness. So I mean, from everything from industry and and business through to education has been played by this drive towards efficiency, which usually just means cutting back on stuff. And whereas effectiveness, going back to the point about impact, is more about is this thing effective or not? And I think it would be a much more useful metric. I would have to say possessiveness. So mm. particularly in the higher education context, it's very much a this is my research, this is my topic area, this is my mm. time. And those things have been incredibly hard to try and change within people to let them understand they're part of a bigger picture, not just you will be made nothing if you give up these things. And that's the fear a lot of people actually have. Mm. Yeah. That'd be one thing. Uh, final question is, um, any advice that you give to an emerging HCD talent? So I'm going to steal something from Brendan Dawes, who said this to me once, which I thought was really great, which said, to be a more interesting designer, you'd have to be a more interesting person. So you know, to be curious, I think, is really important. And to be able to connect things together and then explain you how you kind of got there I think is the, the number one skill all the other stuff, the actual technical and craft skills, I think you can 
pick up quite easily. But that thinking bit, that has to start earlier. It's really, really hard to turn around people's thinking style later on in life. Mm. Mm, I'd probably extend that and say always question because one thing I've seen particularly with new students is the fact they get in and they are solution-driven and they'll get to that solution immediately and go, there, I'm done. Whereas that's not the way it needs to work. It's always about questioning yourself and understanding the context. So that would be number one for me. Yeah, Yeah, that's a great one. You often see, you know, tell me what I have to do and I'll do it quicker and better than everyone else and far, you know, and it's like, but that's not what I'm interested in. Cool. Thanks, guys. Andy, Simon, thank you so much for being on the show this week. Um, Really enjoyed speaking with you. If anyone wants to reach out to you and get in touch with you, how might they be able to do that? So I'm A. Polane on Twitter, A-P-O-L-A-I-N-E. And we'll put that link um, in the show notes. Yeah, and well, polane.com is my neglected website. Um, and you could find me on uh, Fjord as well at fjordnet.com. And you're also on the Slack channel. For this I'm also on the Slack thing. channel and you can Google I'm sure you'll, you'll find something. And Simon, we need to get you onto that Slack channel as well. Yeah, no, it sounds great. Otherwise, Google is a good option or s.mcintyre at unsw.edu.au that's a short email it is it's it's another problem in education (laughs) a lot of long emails I'll put your email in the the show notes as well guys thanks so much thank you very much it's been a pleasure thank you so there you have it I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world thanks for listening and see you next time Thank you.